folks, Eli Ramos here, creator of Under the Electric Stars. If you're hearing my voice, hey, we're cross-promoting with Hainai, a Filipino horror podcast created by Mozi Dapu. As you probably already know, since you're listening to this on the Hainai feed, you can support Hainai through crowdfunding at ko-fi.com slash Hainaipod. As of this recording, they are 37% of the way to their goal, so toss a coin to your podcast if you've got the means. For more details, check out their Tumblr at highnipod.tumblr.com. If you've got the funds, please help them hit their goal. Now I get to tell you about my show and the episode you're about to hear. Under the Electric Stars is a cyberpunk audio fiction about Kane Reyes, the fastest driver in Metropolis West, and the rising revolution starting with the rebel group Zero Zero. It's a Pinoy-driven podcast that's about diaspora, found family, and Asians in a genre that historically has utilized our aesthetics but not represented our culture. This episode is our most recent one, Season 2, Episode 9, Arrival, where an old foe catches up with Zero Zero while they're at an outpost called Caramalplex. I personally think it's pretty enjoyable even if you're not all the way caught up, but if you want to check out our show, transcripts, and ways to support us, head on over to underthealectricstars.com. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash mixeliramos, that's M-X-E-L-I-R-A-M-O-S, that supports the podcasting network that we're on called Astro Podcasting Network. If you support us there, you can get early releases, behind-the-scenes info, and even merch for all the shows on the network. Again, you can check us out at underthealectricstars.com, enjoy the episode, and see you in Metropolis West soon. Our next episode releases at the end of April. Hey everyone, it's Motsi. This bonus episode, Betya, a Hainai love story, is dropping today because of the amazing people who helped us smash our $2,500 milestone on the Hainai fundraiser. At this point, we've also hit our release goal. 4,550, so expect new episodes of Hainai coming on the horizon. However, we'd still like to encourage everyone to donate to our fundraiser so we can cover fees and get to our stretch goals. Our first stretch goal, at 10,150, would allow us to hire a dedicated editor. Our second stretch goal, 12,850 and beyond, would allow us to do more with Hainai such as have live events, and even independently publish a Hainai comic and or book, given my background in indie publishing and the comic scene. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode filled with romance and horror, lots and lots of horror, centering on the terrifying puppet master and the elder who loved them. Please, please read the content warnings. Thank you, we love you, and see you in Act 3. You're listening to Hainai by Matsidapo Petya, a Hainai love story. Petya just wanted to help. He always wanted to help. He wasn't often very good at it. 
but he gave it his best, and always had a soft heart for those who looked to him for aid. Not that there were many who did in his life. He was very clumsy, you see, too eager for his tall, wiry frame. Like a newborn fawn, too awkward on its long legs. It had been so when he was very young, and it was a trait he retained well into adulthood, though many thorough thrashings by his father taught him a sense of decorum. It was enough that he learned shame. His eagerness, tempered by the knowledge that if he was too quick to hold a hand out, that he was as liable to strike someone as to assist them. Still, when he was asked, he provided aid without hesitation. It was simply how he was. Growing up in a household where very little was expected of him, for fear of his inability to perform his duties to his father's standard. That was why, when he was asked to represent the family in a venture, set out by a friend of his father's, he was more than happy to fulfill his duties. As he would find out later, his usefulness extended mostly to allowing his father to engage in the pretense of care for his old friend's strange venture. Mysticism was fashionable among the elites in parts of Europe and America, that was for sure. But to lend it any sort of credence was far beneath the Ilyich patriarch. Not so his son, who would take his place attending Savard soirees. If nothing else... Pecha was attentive, and though he did not understand all the concepts Savard presented alongside those who had won his favor, it seemed that the man respected his willingness to learn, more than the absent attendance of his vapid peers. In his time, he was kind to many, but had few friends in the Ordo. The closest he might consider friendship was with the unassuming Nessie Smith, who took time to explain certain concepts to him, and even stood beside him the night Savard made his first sacrifice. Petya could not look. He knew it was childish, for what coward would hide from such a turning point in Dora's power? Though Nessie seemed sympathetic, even she did not look away when a man died before them, giving true power and veracity to what had up until that point been speculation. After that day, Becha learned, slowly, and yet, his was a knowledge not many could lay claim to, and for once in his life, he felt as though he could be Useful. Helpful. He'd walked out of the general practice when he saw the most captivating eyes he had ever seen, ever so briefly, before they looked down in what, for others, 
might have been shame. But the look of the stranger... Pecha could not imagine shame crossing this beautiful stranger's perfect, doll-like face. For what would such a transcendental beauty have to be ashamed of? He could not tell if they were man or woman. For they were more beautiful than any woman that had vied for or eschewed Pecha's attention and yet wore a masterfully tailored suit that seemed hardly to crease even as they sat in the front hall of the private practice. They were reading a green leather bound, bearing the title, The Integrative Action of the Nervous System, in gold-embossed lettering. They were clearly well-to-do, both in appearance and presence at such an exclusive office, but Pecha had never seen them among his peers, who had become familiar amongst their social circles. Are you a doctor as well? he couldn't help but ask, drawing those eyes back to his own. They were more like a doll's than he'd first thought, framed by thick lashes, great and black, somehow both more expressive, yet unreadable at once. Yes, said the other, their voice surprisingly quiet, gentle, alluring. But even doctors have ailments they cannot themselves diagnose. That's why we have specialities. And your specialty? They raised their book, tapping on the cover with a wry smile, barely stretching small lips. A study of the neurosciences. A more niche specialization, to be sure. My own general practice attracts more success, though St. Michael's has given me ample employment as a surgeon. If Pecha were honest, this stranger could have said anything at all, and he would have been intrigued. But to see such a person achieve so much, so young, in contrast with his own life, spent passing time wanting for nothing and lagging in his own study of another man's work, well, he was enamored. Petr, he said. Petr Ilyich. The mild interest on the stranger's face transformed, and they smiled truly, some sort of jolliness alighting in their eyes. <laughs> You may call me Drosselmeyer, they said, as though sharing an amusing joke. Pecha didn't understand it at the time. Only later would he discover the coincidence of his name, and this lovely doctor's admiration of another Ilyich, and his great compositions. But they still seemed to enjoy, or in the very least, warmly tolerate his questions. The two of them sat together in that foyer, chatting in easy companionship, until a nurse approached them to hand the visiting doctor a set of complex notes that they set to reading, eyes flying across the page. The nurse looked between Pecha and the doctor for a moment, 
but something about his expression must have reassured her. So she took her leave, face grim. The doctor's mood seemed to shift, their smile disappearing entirely, face paling even in the warm light of the incandescence. It was lovely to meet you, Peter, they said. It was an abrupt end to their conversation, and as the doctor stood to leave, out of impulse, Petra asked to accompany them. They looked so faint, troubled, and Petra, as always, only wanted to help. The doctor looked uncertain, just for a moment, before accepting with a gentle smile that made Petra's heart flutter. He extended a hand, and the doctor ran their gloved fingers across Petra's palm, before clasping it, like a solemn agreement. It was the first time they had ever met, and yet, Petra was enamored forever. The time Petra spent with his beloved doctor would live forever in his memory, though for a time, it was something of a one-sided affair. Though Drosselmeyer kept their feelings close to the chest, they spoke of their work with such authority and knowledge that, in comparison, Becha felt inadequate. In looking for something to share that might match the quality of Drosselmeyer's brilliance, he began to share what he learned from his time with the Ordo, of Savard's mysticism, and the results of his people's experimentation. It was, at first, met with skepticism, and Pecho was quick to speak of all he had seen that warded away his own uncertainty, of the man who had died with naught but chanted words. Drosselmeyer had many a theory to spare of how the man died, each more scientific than the last, but Pecho, in fear of losing their regard, promised to master a spell he had been slow to learn, and show them the truth of the matter. The power Salvard had promised and delivered. It was knowledge Pecha had not even shared with his own father, who had long ago dismissed the Ordo's work as a flight of fancy of an otherwise reasonable man. Pecha set to work mastering the spell of healing, knitting skin together without seam, reversing damage. A spell fit for a doctor, unlike anything other members had been working on, with their use of fire, ice, and shadow. He showed it to his beloved doctor, cutting his arm upon their kitchen table. He was not used to such pain, but when the doctor held his other hand, he was able to master himself, and his skin rejoined until there was no mark left but the bit of blood that had escaped the wound. There was a shift in their interactions when he showed his work. Drosselmeyer asked to learn, and he taught them to the best of his ability, lending them the power he had access to through Savard's foci. Drosselmeyer was, he thought, enamored with him the moment he proved his usefulness. They gave him more affection, and he hungered for it. 
he began to learn more of the craft, more spells to deliver to his doctor, more knowledge from Savard himself, who noticed his drive and allowed it to flourish. He did not know what the doctor did with the spells they learned. He never thought to ask, never considered what they might be practicing whenever they left the city for their second home, a brick house in the picturesque town of Hyde. It was not trust that he had for the doctor. Becha was clumsy and too eager, but he was no great fool. It was simply that he was intoxicated, both by his adoration for the doctor, who reserved their secret smiles for him alone, and by the feeling of being needed. All other feelings paled in comparison to these. Mistrust, uncertainty, fear, all fell away to the ecstasy of being useful. Every sense that could have warned him of what was to come all fell away. When Savard abdicated and the order fell apart, breaking into factions that grasped for power, Becha felt afraid. For the first time, he had nothing to offer when he found himself once more at the doctor's door. He had felt it for a time, the shift within the ordo, when the one woman in Savard's circle, Marianne, he remembered, passed away, and everyone who had been paying attention were made aware that, in spite of their newfound immortality, their lot could still die somehow. He feared what that meant, but more so, he feared that the one thing that made him worthwhile, the Ordo, and all the knowledge he gained from his attendants, would disappear, and he would be left with nothing. He would be left as nothing. No more than the spare, useless child that nobody looked to for their needs. No longer one who could make a brilliant doctor's eyes light up as he brought them something new to study and dissect much faster than he had taken to learn it. The terror within him reflected the yawning chasm of a future without those eyes without the hard-won smile. He was ashamed that night when the door to Drosselmeyer's house opened and he began to sob. Ashamed when they wrapped arms around his back and allowed him to rest his head upon their shoulder, tall frame bent low. They were kind to him in that moment, 
kind enough to coo at him, encourage him, drink, to make up for the lost fluids, and guide him to bed. Kind enough to lay with him, stroke his hair, and guide him to sleep against them, soft voice humming one of their favorite pieces from a long-dead composer into his ear. He wondered, in the morning, if Drosselmeyer would still show him such kindness when he began to encroach on their home with nothing to offer but his own self, which, to him, was worth barely anything at all. He had already shamed himself in front of them, acting like a helpless child, forcing them into the role of caregiver. Even if they had, before, shared passions, nights that he would cherish forever. This was the most naked he had ever been, before the one he would give everything to please. And so, laid bare before the one he loved most, who made him feel needed, feel whole, Petya made his proposition. Intently did Drosselmeyer listen, their doll eyes never leaving his. Make use of me, said Petya. He cared not how, only that he could stay with them, forever. Only that he could help the one he loved most to achieve their goals. He remembered that first night when he guided the doctor home, snuck a glance at the papers he didn't fully understand left upon the living room table, caught when Drosselmeyer asked what he intended with the information. He had admitted ignorance, beyond the mention of blood in a matter of obstetrics, a word he had once heard but knew little about. Drosselmeyer had sighed, citing a life they had once dreamt of, now forfeit, with a judgment of harrowing finality passed upon them by the medical sciences. I want the impossible, said they, to clarify, and that is the harsh reality I must now live with of the many I have faced in my time. They had sounded so deeply despondent then, behind their calm veneer. Betia remembered, though it seemed like a distant memory now, when he had seen so much of Drosselmeyer's frantic brilliance, connecting their own knowledge of the anatomical to the spells he learned from the Ordo, that they learned through him. When he gave them a way to achieve the impossible, opening for them a window when all doors had been barricaded shut, that was when they began to love him, he could not lose that love now. Never. Not in his lifetime. And so, he gave himself to them. First, a power source, before they learned to harvest their own. One day, 
Drosselmeyer had returned from Hyde, smiling warm, telling him of how they had designed a spell of their own, creating both a thing that lived, though dead, and finding a power source in the conflagration of violent, fearful death, as well as the confinement of a soul. It was brilliance beyond even Savard's, a spell that Petya celebrated in the doctor's embrace and exuberant kisses, while in turn cursed, for it rendered him useless as their primary source of power. And so he went further. He allowed them to test their newfound discoveries, the small improvements, the perfecting of their spell. Eventually, they found themselves in need of a subject that would not die before it was time, so that they could remain more intact than the empty-headed doll of a priest Drosselmeyer had first created. When Petya offered himself, the doctor did not look upon him with horror, or reject him outright. They simply stared at him, with unreadable, doll-like eyes, and stroked his face. You needn't do this, they said. Petya had been with them long enough to know what lies, even sweet ones, sounded, coming from their lips. It did not take more than a night for him to go under the knife, for him to become used to the feeling of a well-sharpened blade, slicing his skin open, a moment when it sunk into his flesh, where he felt nothing at all, before the feel of the air along his exposed flesh made him scream in agony. They could only use enough anesthetic to dull the pain, but not his senses, for it was his own spell that kept him intact as the doctor worked, knitting skin and muscle back together, even as he was skinned, sliced open, his living insides studied under their careful watchful eye. As an elder, so long as the foci continued to power him, he could not die of old age. Over time, Drosselmeyer made many discoveries in using his body, that he could survive without a kidney, then without a pancreas, without a liver, stomach, lungs. It was strange to see the intact pieces of him removed with such precision. His own spell used to connect what could not feasibly be reconnected, lovingly rendered in such detail. The doctor fashioned for him new bones made of wood new organs they had taken from the morgue at St. Michael's, given life anew, mixed in with these parts, tested for compatibility, were joints and engines of clockwork, frames of wood and metal, carved spaces within which he inhabited. 
unable to feel, yet feeling more than he had ever felt with flesh fingers. Under loving hands, Betya was replaced in entirety, and still remained himself, holding on to himself, for the sake of the one he loved most. The only thing, said Drosselmeyer, that they would not touch, for fear of losing him, and the essence of him, was his brain. Without the brain, they said, there could be no memory to build a soul from, and no way for their spell of bringing the dead back fully, as they were in life, to work. Do not tell him, said the doctor once, when they revealed that truth, the flaws in their spell of resurrection. Dulled by exhaustion from another transplant, Petya did not know what they meant at the time. Though later, he would piece it together. When he saw the clockwork doll Drosselmeyer had begun to create in their basement, These were the secrets they shared with him, and no other. When he asked of the clockwork doll, they told him a truth no other elder knew, though all would have vied to know, in this time of chaos. On a night of quiet grief, they told him of their loss, that drove them to the goal they had set their sights upon. And eventually, as the years passed and factions of the Ordo tore each other to pieces, they asked if he would like to meet their daughter, a girl whom they had met in Hyde, who had become apprentice and loving child in one. A girl whose dreams now took precedence over their own, in creating a town of the dead, yet living. Hosts of dolls, powered by fear-death, confining souls. A girl with black hair and straight white teeth, whose likeness they had begun to sculpt from wood and clockwork. The perfect culmination of the experiments that had consumed his original body. Made anew. We have enemies, said the doctor, grimly, and if her body should be destroyed in pursuit of me, she ought to have a haven to retreat to, if things go poorly. Enemies, they said, members of the Ordo, who had started taking notice of such powerful, brilliant magic those who sent curses, flimsy spells, and attempted to test the infamous puppet master's prowess, whether on their own or on behalf of their alliance, with a nameless elder who had begun to gather allies, including Richard Henry, one of Savard's greatest. 
It gnawed at Petya, as he sat protecting his beloved and their daughter, from harm with spells he had learned and memorized over the years. They who came after them, hunted them, seemed to know of Drosselmeyer's power. They called them Puppet Master, knew well of their ability to bring the dead back to life and vied for it. But who was it that had told these elders? How did they know? When Petya took their hand once more, kissing it as they promised to dispatch his old fellows to protect them, they gave him a mirror of the first smile they had given him long ago, full of joy, warmth, then laughter, as they danced to his beloved's favorite song, spinning them like a ballet dancer. Petya knew from extensive experience his own body broken down and rebuilt, what it would take to kill an elder. Knowing of the magic prowess of his fellows, he armed himself with a simple pistol and a veneer of his old self to fool those who saw him only as the kindly Petir, who had little ambition, only too eager to help. He asked some, those he deemed worth asking, if they would join the Puppet Master's faction against the self-styled benefactor who hunted them for the knowledge Drosselmeyer had accrued over years of avid research. Most, he killed, bound and buried, leaving them in a state of dreaded death, never to pass on, but never able to come back. He secured the loyalty of a few, much fewer than he'd hoped. Too many feared retribution from the benefactor, and some were even loyal to him, enough that subduing them proved a great challenge. But still, Petya persisted. If only to help the one he loved most, he persisted. His end was unceremonious, and he had not felt its coming until it was upon him. He met with Vanessa and Giuliano Bartolotti. For the former, he felt affection for helping him all those years ago, even if simply out of pity. For the latter, he felt wariness for his sharp eyes and what he knew of his prowess. He had, after all, been in the room when Giuliano dispatched the beginnings of rebellion with Grigori and his ilk. When they refused him, he drew his pistol dispatch them both. And yet, in but a moment, he was himself subdued. In the moments between each second, 
he realized what he had done. He had become a liability, worse than even useless. If they discovered Drosselmeyer's secrets through him, he would have aided in their downfall. If the Bartolottis found what they sought in the inner workings of his rebuilt body. So, he lied. He spun a tale for the couple, but for Nessie in particular, preying on her pity, begging them for death, begging for his body to be burned if he could not escape under his own power. He told them as much as he thought they needed to know, cast himself in their play as a simple fool, taken in and blinded by the mythical monster they had devised in their heads. In so doing, they asked all the wrong questions. In so doing, Petya was able to conceal from them the secret that all in the Ordo might have wished to know, that now only Drosselmeyer could carry, alone. In the end, Petya was burned his mind and soul alike, at peace, knowing that he had been used and that he had been useful. He did not see the war between puppet master and benefactor, facilitated by one who knew too much. He did not see their daughter choked to death in her own blood, powering a clockwork machine that he had never known. He did not see his beloved rupture the vessels in their brain with a spell they learned through his own. Indestructive reverse. There was nothing left of him to see after he had been all used up from his soft, loving heart to the brain left intact in his wooden head and no one left to speak of the clockwork doll in Drosselmeyer's basement, nor the one who commissioned its creation. You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. What is Hainai? Hainai, literally translated to Hi Mom, is a supernatural horror fiction podcast about Filipina immigrant Mary Datuin, whose babaylan, or shaman, family background, accidentally gets her involved in stopping dangerous supernatural events in Toronto. It's an analog-style horror fiction audio drama with a Filipina lead, running with the idea that the mystical POC, or people of color, often relegated to side characters or exposition tools in horror media, are the protagonists. The sound is meant to emulate the protagonist's phone call to her mother, as well as tape recordings later in the story. The main story deals with supernatural threats in Toronto, but there are flashback episodes called Remind Me to Tell You Later, 
in which protagonist Marita Duin recounts her experiences with Filipino folklore creatures, mixing occult horror in Canada and folk horror from the Philippines. We're currently trying to raise $12,850 on our Indiegogo campaign, so that we can release Act 3, as well as provide our amazing actors and crew with honoraria for helping us out in creating our first two acts, which are available to listen to wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as on YouTube. We're also hoping to hire a dedicated editor, as well as a transcriptionist, and possibly expand into other areas, such as live shows, and even a book and comic, or other expanded media. But most of all, all we really want to do is make sure that Hainai keeps going, so that we'll be able to tell the story that we want to tell, and help our podcast grow into something even bigger than ever before. So please help us in our fundraiser at igg.me slash apt slash hainaipod, that's H-I-N-A-Y-P-O-D. And give us a listen if you're into some terrifying audio drama. Thank you. Maraming salamat. And see you there. Kita kits.